I don't know if you knew this, but the world of podcasting is massive. Hi, I'm Leah. I'm the host of CBC's Podcast Playlist. There is such a constant avalanche of new releases, it can be hard to keep up. Luckily, Podcast Playlist can help. Every week, we deep dive into the podcast world to find the most compelling stories. And every month, we'll give you a sneak peek into the hottest new releases so you can stay ahead. Tune in to Podcast Playlist on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Walter Borden believes in the resilience of the human spirit, a theme that flows through his semi-autobiographical play, The Last Epistle of Tightrope Time. It was first written and performed in 1983. Pretentiousness will compel you in the springtime of your twenties to think your life an epic for a book. And revised and restaged with age. Then you will learn to chart your sojourn as you ponder through your fifties in the eloquent simplicity of a sentence. Until his final version in his 80th year. Understanding will render counsel in the winter of your eighties and mold your life experience into a smile. It's a one-man play, albeit he plays a total of ten different characters. The latest and final incarnation was meant to open in early 2022 at the National Arts Centre in Ottawa, only to be cancelled due to a massive truckers' protest of COVID-19 mandates. Instead, it premiered months later at the Neptune Theatre in Halifax, in many ways appropriate as Walter, who is Black and Indigenous, grew up about an hour and a half away in New Glasgow. He later became a teacher, activist, and then poet, playwright, and actor. A revered elder of the Canadian stage, he's performed throughout the country, including at the Stratford Festival. But it was back in his native Nova Scotia where Ideas producer Mary Link met up with him. We're calling this program The Last Epistle of Tightrope Time, The Enduring Wisdom of Walter Borden. It begins with Mary remembering a performance by Walter decades ago at Halifax's Dunn Theatre. All my life I've waited for this. (laughs) Oh, Mary, this is wonderful. When I was a little, little girl, I went to the Dunn Theatre. I don't know how old I was, seven or something like that. And I saw Puss in Boots. And you came out as the cat. And I was transfixed. And I was like, wow. You have that effect on people, Walter. You just captivate people. Well, I guess it, it, it comes in good stead for the business that I'm in. So I'm grateful. At, at 80, Walter, you're launching the latest incarnation of your semi-autobiographical play, a play you first wrote 47 years ago here in Halifax, where you're from, Nova Scotia. You were only 33 then, and your latest incarnation of this play, because it keeps growing with your age and being rewritten, finish this sentence, because you've just, you've just launched your latest version at 80. Walter Borden is... Sated. Sated is a beautiful word, and sated is a beautiful thing to be able to say 
after eight decades on this earth. It's something I think we all would aspire to. Yeah, because it's the one thing that tells you that regardless of what your journey has been, how much you didn't understand it while it was unfolding, how much how much you couldn't understand while it was unfolding, to have that all made manifest to you at one particular point so that you can say, I feel good. Explain for me the title of this play, The Epistle of Tightrope Time. Right. Well, the actual title now is The Last Epistle of Tightrope <laughs> Time. The first name was Can't Stop Now, Saints Have Trod. Then it became Tightrope Time Ain't Nothing More Than Some Itty Bitty Madness Between Your Twilight and Your Dawn. But that came at a time when it was the thing in writing to have very long titles. And I remember like uh, for color girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. The titles like that, they were very common at the time. And so that's how that title came along. Then everybody kept referring to it as tightrope time. Just tightrope time. One evening I was talking with a great colleague of mine, Janet Sears, great playwright, Canadian playwright. And Janet said, because she had been following it for many years now, and she said, it's like an epistle. And I said, Janet, oh my goodness, that's the title. That's the title. And it was called The Epistle of Tightrope Time. And what does that mean? Well, the epistle, an epistle is uh, what you might consider to be um, a prophecy, uh, a discourse. The old prophets would write epistles. But it just seemed as if that's what was going on in here. But it became the last epistle because when I started seeing that the end of the process was in sight, and that came when I started working with Peter Hinton, who was going to become my director. And, and, and Peter Hinton said... And he wrote, this is Walter's, and then he says in brackets, almost on brackets, <laughs> final word on life and its divine mystery. Yeah. Would that be okay if this is it? Or do you think you'll ever, do you think there's going to be another incarnation? Or is oh, there will never be another incarnation. No, of, of the you have completed yeah. this masterpiece. This, this is here. This is it. I might and probably will write other things. Tightrope time, is that sort of a symbolic of the life that we walk on this kind of edge and full of, well, the possibility to fall, I suppose. Tell me about that. Yes, well, that's the whole thing. It was my contention that we all walk a tightrope. You only get from where you are go by inching on your tightrope, but rest assured, your tightrope time 
ain't nothing more than some itty-bitty madness between your twilight and your dawn. When people see this play, I mean, you say at times people are going to be uncomfortable and you want them to be at times. Oh, yes. And this play is going to go across the country. What do you want your audience to walk away from this experience? Because I tell you, it's an amazing experience since I've experienced it. But what do you want them to be? I want them to be in communication with their core, their core essence. It is an assault on your senses. It is an assault on your very belief system. It's an assault. And yet, what you're viewing is merely the other side of the coin which we all carry. We are conditioned to recognize one side of the coin without understanding that it's equal opposite is also there and that you are that other person whom you are so repelled by because you are totally capable of being that other person. You're looking at yourself from the other side of the mirror. If you can do that, and you must do that because ultimately you're denying your full essence doesn't mean that you use it. What you use to determine which side of the coin you will be on at any given time is choice. So unpack this more for me. What are the two sides of Walter Borden? My whole understanding stems from my true belief in the balance of the universe, total balance, and that our whole job, if you will, our responsibility, our great task, is to maneuver as close to the center as one possibly can. Because if I look at it as a linear thing and I find the center of this line that is a universal line and recognize that I, all of us, are on one side of the fulcrum, one side is a line that one might refer to as positive. The other side, the negative. Learning where one stands on either side of the fulcrum is very important because you then know which direction you have to travel in order to get to the center. And we become, for so many reasons, entrapped in whatever spot we find ourselves on the negative or positive side of the fulcrum. We become complacent. We become safe. We feel safe there. And our inclination is not to move from there. You have the comfortable pew, whether it be in the positive area or the negative. Because certainly someone who is existing at the point in the negative really sees it very differently from the person who is looking at them from the positive side. This is their quote-unquote norm. Because a positive isn't always positive. That if you look at, or maybe I'm interpreting this wrong, but if you look at everything that's perfect, sometimes I see people, what they say, how is everything? Oh, it's great. It's wonderful. They could have really a tragic thing happening to them. So that in itself is a negative when you can't 
when you can't balance your life to understand the pain and the joy and sort of bring it together. Exactly, and that is definitely spoken of by the character Ethiopia because that's exactly what she says. An image passing as a human being contorts a frown into a smile and telegraphs a message of how are you to my mind. An image pretending to be me confuses fact and fiction by responding with some bullshit saying everything's just great, great, great. Yes, in this play, I mean, it's all through a one person, this man. You see a black, I'm just a black man talking. Mm-hmm. and But it's it's semi-autobiographical, but there's 10 characters that he then, when he talks about them, he becomes. But I want to also say that this is a, you say this is an illumination of the resilience of the human spirit. I mean, that's key, too. Yeah, that's the whole essence of the piece. And that is very simple. Very simple. It speaks to what you are innately capable of. And you know what, Walter? I I had cancer once, and uh, or a few times, whatever. But I'm fine. At breast cancer, and sometimes women uh, who are in the same situation, newly diagnosed, talk to me, come to me. And one thing I always say to them is what cancer taught me is how incredibly resilient and strong the human spirit is. And it's almost a secret that you, it's good not to know because you might take advantage of that secret. But once it comes forth and once you understand how strong you are, it's really incredibly comforting to know that you have within you this deep, deep well of resiliency. But I think life, you can't know this at a a young age. You cannot. You cannot. And I'm sure that somewhere in our talk, we'll get to where that is truly pointed out by one of the characters in the play. But that realization, that enlightenment about which you're just speaking can only come when very, very dynamic, huge catalyst pops into the picture. And it will take everybody to the exact same point when they experience that catalytic thing. It's a true enlightenment. And what is interesting about that is what I have found. When you arrive at that point, you discard all artifice. You discard any fear of saying what you're saying, even knowing that others might not understand you. And of course, as we said, no, they can't understand until they're there. What was your catalyst? This. When I read something by a great playwright, Lorraine Hansberry, people will know her for A Raisin in the Sun, but she had written another book called To Be Young, Gifted, and Black. And in it, she wrote, I had reached a point where I did not care anymore. 
I could not care anymore. But then I realized I care. I care about it all. It takes too much energy not to care. Yesterday I counted 26 gray hairs on the top of my head, all from trying not to care. And then she said, The why of why we are here is an intrigue for adolescence. The how must command the living. And that is why I have lately become an insurgent again. My point is, my belief is, that what you were describing there about that enlightenment, the point of enlightenment comes when you realize that it is your how that you must be dedicated to and not your why. Because you cannot answer for yourself, why am I here? Every individual whom you will meet will let you know why you are here. And it will change with every individual. They will respond to your how you are here. And your how will allow them to tell you why you are here for them. For this one, this one, it will always change. That's when you get your why. You just concentrate on your how. How am I here? And how are you here? I am here. Well, the how is as flexible as the number of people you'll meet, meaning each time you meet somebody, all that's happening is that two arcs are intersecting. Two journeys. At that point, you present to the person whose arc has just intersected to you your how. How do I greet them? How do I interact with that? Now, you also possess at that moment complete power to determine how that intersecting is going to affect you. Do you choose to walk parallel arcs for a little while? Nothing more than just the one intersecting and then continue on? Or do you allow somebody else's arc to merge with yours so that you are no longer following an independent arc? you are being carried on another person's arc. Is that a good thing? That is not a good thing. Yes, and yet we do that. That is what is. It's the age of the Internet to follow someone's arc. Exactly. It is the worst thing that you can have happen because the universe is not as designed it that way. You have a journey. To thy own self be true. That's it. You are responsible for one journey, yours, one arc. You know, resilience, when I talked about before about cancer, but resilience is also a much-needed sword when you're 
a minority when you're black, when you're black and gay and growing up in Nova Scotia, you know, 80 years ago, as you did. Do you remember when you first realized that you were black as opposed to white? Let me think. Ah, colorism. Colorism came into play very early in my life. I was in my community an oddity, but an oddity that was uh, most captivating for people at the time. Blonde hair, blue eyes. The first indication for me I talk about in the play when my mother's sister brought the lady for whom she worked 40 miles to see this child. And I come home from school, my first year in school, 1948. And I come in to the house and they call me into the living room. And in the play, I say, I knew that there was something wrong the day I watched my living room become an auction block. And my mother, her sister, whom I knew very well, and this lady whom I didn't know, this white lady, and the lady, Mrs. Wilson, feeling my hair and holding my face and looking at my eyes and saying, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes. And then she commented on the color of... It was traumatic enough to have that happening But this little one is also looking at, as it says in the play, um, uh, I watched my living room become an oxen block and heard those gentle voices, which had always seemed protective, suddenly with urgency and ill-concealed pride command me to perform and earn the admiration of our poised and honored guest who with due consideration and unmitigated awe bought the goods and called my honey hair, blue eyes, mellow yellow presence a wonderment. I knew that there was something wrong and ran and hid beneath my front porch steps till she had gone. Then I took my box of crayons and filled with calm and hate. I crept up to my bedroom and I hid the brown one in my dresser drawer. Then I went down to the kitchen and held the white one in the fire until it melted all away. Did you really do that? Absolutely. 
You're listening to The Last Epistle of Tightrope Time, The Enduring Wisdom of Walter Borden, on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. We're a broadcast and a podcast. You can subscribe to Ideas on the CBC Listen app and through any of your favorite podcast apps. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Walter Borden is a legendary Canadian actor, poet and playwright. Now in his 80s, he has just finished the latest and final version of his semi-autobiographical play, The Last Epistle of Tightrope Time. At its core, it is a celebration of resilience. Let's return to Ideas producer Mary Link in conversation with Walter Borden. Tell me more about your family, because your mother and dad had 18 children, so you had nine sisters, eight brothers, then they had sort of raised two grandsons as yes. well, so really there's 20 That's siblings, right. which is incredible. I remember families like that growing yeah, up in Nova yeah. Scotia, those big families, which I always looked at as a, as a marvel, but... What was it like to grow up in small town Nova Scotia, one of the vibrant black communities, about 37 communities yes, around, yes, yeah. and yours was pretty vibrant, the one you mm-hmm. grew up in, in um, New Glasgow. But how did it shape you to be one of 20? Well, you know, you know, I came along there somewhere near the middle in, in around there. But I came looking as I looked and doing as I did. And by that I mean, I did not talk for a long time. My mother told me, would tell me that later on in life, that they were a bit concerned. But the thing was, I was aware of everything. You, as all great writers, an observer. Totally. My friend Donna Morrissey, who's a writer, like you, is very verbose. But, you know, that's what she did. She observed. She watched everybody. And when you were a young boy, one of the greatest lessons was sitting in your room beside the the living room, I think, Mm -hmm. and your mother and your aunt would be telling the week's stories. And your mother was, you say to this day, that she still is a superior storyteller to you, which must be something. Take me back to one of those Friday nights and um, a story you remember that that she would tell. And she would tell, I guess, just like your character in your play. And when she was talking about someone, she would become that somebody. That's it. And I can't remember any specific one because what... It would be whatever went on during the week in which my mother and my aunt hadn't seen each other. Now they're going to get together on Friday night and they're going to go over the week. It was how 
she so easily went from a new stitch that she had learned and she was showing my aunt and then right back into the story that she was telling about this person and immediately into their dialect and and then uh, that's the way it went and i would sit there absolutely fascinated that she could do this that she could take on the people that she was talking about that she would pretend to be that yes yeah and there would be dialects because in the community there were dutch folks there were many french and scottish and even my neighbor who lived like maybe what a four or five minute walk down the little hill from my place black gentleman he spoke fluent gaelic oh cool and I have no idea how he got it. So when my mother would be talking about something about this gentleman, she would go in the dial into the dialect that he would use when he was talking Gaelic. Or next minute she'd be talking to about Mrs. Sozo across the road, who was the Dutch lady. And suddenly her accent would be there. And they'd be back and forth. And I couldn't, I really couldn't grasp at the time, still can probably, how she did that. But I know that what I was watching and took it as such years later, these were my first up-close and personal theater lessons. Let's do an excerpt from the play now. And uh, like your mother in your play, it's semi-autobiographical, but our lives are affected by the people who come into our lives. So mm-hmm. there's nine other characters that this, as, as you say, you know, I'm just a black man talking, the main narrator. So they are male and female, divine and mortal, sacred and profound, you say. So let's start with a reading from a spirit. You explain who the spirit is. And in it, the spirit says, which is in part Walter Borden, I would imagine, I was born to be a griot. What is a griot, first off, before we hear the reading? And who is a spirit? The griot in the African culture is the keeper of the record of his people. His only purpose for being, having been chosen by the previous griot, as an infant, raised by that griot, and taught daily, constantly, the history of the particular group of people from which he comes. You were born a griot, as you say. Yeah. Sometimes you're just born. Do you think of griot? Oh, oh yes. Oh, so yeah. tell me about the spirit that we're about to hear from, the who es- it is. The Estelusti spirit. The Estelusti now, the Estelusi were those progeny of slave, African slaves, and one of five tribes, indigenous tribes in the south. In the south of the states. Of the United States. Now, sometimes the, uh, the uh, slave would run away and seek shelter among the people. Other times... Among the indigenous people. The indigenous people. Other times, 
they were actively sold by uh, white owners to indigenous people, particularly the Cherokee people. And in your case, I'm just going to say, you have a Mi'kmaq connection. Big t- well, you oh, are, because time. your grandmother was Mi'kmaq, your yeah. great-grandmother, well, your grandmother's. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you... Were you conscious of that growing up, where your grandmother was from? Oh, oh, oh yes. Oh, yes. Very, 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 very. Um, and, and my great-grandmother, Granny Kitty. But it wasn't until later, when my sister started doing all the uh, genealogy, that we were tracing on our mother's side the Estelus state. Wow, so you have it on both. Yeah. It's a gorgeous mixture yeah. of cultures. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So this is a spirit. So This let's, is a spirit. So let's do this reading from the Estelus spirit. He says... Uh, I am nature's love child. Yeah. Do you want it? I have it in front of me. Oh, no, oh, no, no, oh. I have it. Um. Your memory is incredible. My Estelusti spirit said, You are nature's love child, a witness and a messenger. And freedom is your father. You were born to be a griot, yet you will be called by many other names. But restless is the name they gave you, and you are fashioned from the wind. Born on some forgotten Friday, that's Friday with a Y, not Friday with an I, at half past discontent. When your mama sat down on life's sidewalk, spread her legs and pushed when ain't no problem time and spewed you there where maybe you will jail boulevard cuts across maybe you won't jail avenue and indifference sauntered by to serve as midwife to wrap you in your soul and say you are nature's love child a witness and a messenger freedom is your father you will be called by many other names. I am called by many still, but restless is the name they gave me, and I am fashioned from the wind. Gorgeous. Gorgeous. You say that when writing this play and writing, I guess, writing the play, the ancestors just doing their thing, the words just come, I'm just along for the ride. Is that how the writing process, is it sort of a possession in some ways of other, of the past and spirits? That is absolutely true. But, you know, there was a long time when I couldn't inject that into answers about my work, I felt, oh, that is too far out. I, I get, you know. But as time went on and I settled into that reality, I had to conclude that regardless of how it was received, all I could say is this is what happened in this writing. I knew that I had been physically writing. I can remember thinking certain words, but I had no concept whatsoever 
of where this chunk of material came from to the point where 99.9% of the time, from that day to what you see now, there's not even a change in a punctuation point. Wow. I remember once a friend of mine said to me when I was writing something, an essay or something for a book, and I was struggling, and he said, write, don't think. Mm-hmm. And that's part of it. It's, I mean, it's a little different what you're saying, but it's the flow. Whatever's inside of you, from wherever it comes, comes. if you start to analyze it, if you start to think while you're writing, you're kind of screwed. You are. You are. And, and, and as, as you must have learned, it's extremely difficult when you're at that point and you have... Uh, you know, a rational mind going. You hope that it's rational. And you, you know how that explanation of how you achieve something, you know how it's going to resonate with what you consider to be sane and rational people, too. They are going to say, listen, I heard about this one talking about hearing voices. and da, da, da. I, said, I don't hear voices. I don't hear voices. Voices don't be talking to me. <laughs> There's just this set of time when these voices are really talking to my arm and, and just using that and out come these words. Walter, I'm going to fast forward a bit from your youth, sure. from your early days in New Glasgow, and what happened. You went to Acadia University, mm-hmm. and then you went to Teachers College and mm-hmm. became a teacher. And you were a teacher in your um, late teens, early twenties, or mm-hmm. and uh, for a few years before you took another path, and and also civil rights, which we'll get into. When I was preparing for this to talk to you, a friend of mine said, oh, my mother was taught by Walter Borden. I said, go away. And her mother, who is white, grew up close to the black community of Cherry Brook. Right. Graham Creighton School had just yes. opened. Graham Creighton. And she was so struck by you. And she's 72 now. You're 80. So I went and called her up. She was Angela Hughes back then. Hold on. What are your memories of him? I just remember him that being very uh, he was he was exuberant oh wow right? that's nice he was so he was dramatic is what he was like when he would read he would read so precisely and he would enunciate so you know like we would just look at him <laughs> that's all I can remember thinking where did this man come from <laughs> I never really forgot him because I mean I have a lot of teachers over the years I don't remember who they were and you yourself Angela became a teacher yes I tell you this is what he did for me he turned me on to English did he really literature he really did he did a lot of reading to us and everything but it was the storytelling too that he would he would tell us stories he would sit on the corner of the desk fling his leg over (laughs) and He'd say, now I've got a story for you sort of thing, right? <laughs> and he never had any problem with discipline. And discipline was a problem in those, that school. He would hold your attention like you had to listen. 
I mean, you know, somebody can tell a story, and, you know, when you're in grade nine, you'd be fooling around with the, your friend next door to you at the seat or picking at something. No, no, when he was telling a story or reading a story or whatever he was doing, you paid attention. Wow. Because it was interesting. Like, he was captivating. <laughs> because Well, you're talking like, to him now. What would you like to say to Walter? You were an inspiration, really, in my life. Uh, and for the love of the written word, the spoken word, and the storytelling. Well, that's what I would say to him. He'll hear that. Thanks, Angela. Yeah. Thank him. Thank him, please. <laughs> you impact people, Walter to hear her say that oh my goodness I can just see it all over again yeah 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 yeah. so you're a young man inspiring people as a teacher in Nova Scotia and so teaching was a big part of your life and important and still is today in your own your next art form of acting but you were also very much you know you grew up there in the 50s and the 60s and the civil rights movement and Nova Scotia was particularly important I mean the states of course but Nova Scotia was very very important to that and very active take me to a kitchen table in 1968, the night the famed civil rights activist who later became a leader in the Black Panther Party, Stokely Carmichael, was sitting at said table with his wife, who was then the famous South African singer, Marion Makiba. Mm-hmm. Take me to that night. And, she, and I have to add, she had just had the hit song that same year, Pata Pata, which was a huge hit yeah. in the States. Take me to that night. Well, that was up on Pepperell Street. Pepperell Street in Halifax. Yes. And uh, there had been a black writers' conference in Montreal. And uh, Rocky, my cousin Rocky. Rocky Jones, Rocky very Jones. famous, famous Nova Scotia. I knew Rocky. couldn't help but fall in love with Rocky, but he was very important to the civil rights movement here in Nova Scotia. Absolutely. Big organizer. Later on, he was a lawyer. And yeah, he's a pretty important person. Yeah. And his wife as well. And Joan. So Rocky meets up with? With Stokely and a few others of the Panthers. And of course, Miriam was there. Stokely simply said that he was exhausted. He would like to have a little downtime, but he wasn't going to get it. Rocky said, come on down to Nova Scotia. Hmm. On the spur of the moment, okay, we'll do that. Down they came. Royalty. (laughs) (laughs) And when they arrived at the airport, there was the RCMP and the police as escorts, they said, you know, for the protection. What protects? Okay, fine. So they lead them into the city and come up to Pepperell Street. And thereafter, for the entire week that they were there, there were, quote-unquote, unmarked cars up and down Pepperell Street. Now, whose host was this on Pepperell Street? This is where jo- uh, Joan and Rocky did. So oh, it was at Joan and Rocky's kitchen table. Okay, yeah, so you're yeah. surrounded. They knew. 
Oh, good heavens, yes. We'd be sitting there in the living room right off the kitchen. It was, in summer, it was hot. So we had the window open to let air in, but the blind pulled down. And all of a sudden, (laughs) we see a hand come through the open window, pull the bottom of the blind, and the blind scrolls up real fast. And all these lights uh, camera lights. Well, by the time we get to the door, they're scurrying and running. And actually, what we did uh, was we turned it into something, as we always did, something funny. We had to. We opened the door. They went running. So we couldn't use our phones because our phones were tapped. And in those days, Again, they weren't as sophisticated as they are now. You knew when your phones were tapped, the buzzing, the carrying on, it was something terrible. To the outer world, there were thoughts of, you know, uh, we are planning this, we are planning I even had friends with whom I worked calling me and asking me, you know, finding it very difficult to ask me, but eventually getting the words out, you know, are you really going to burn the city? We didn't know what they were talking about. I can't figure out where this is coming from. But it's all coming from media and their understanding of who the Panthers were and all like that. Now, mind you, when we sat around the table, we sat around, as I say, as family. We discussed, certainly... Uh, everything that was happening in the world right now, but we were more concerned about the projects that we were undertaking here that were being undertaken in in, in the States, whether it be by um, the, the Panthers or these uh, um, Southern Christian Leadership Conference or CORE, Congress on Racial Equality. And in Nova Scotia, we retained a very uh, intricate kind of relationship with uh, our family south of the border. As a matter of fact, at that time, really, we had greater um, north-south communication than east-west communication. You had many mentors in your life. And oh, yes. and in terms of acting, one of them was Evelyn... Oh, Evelyn Gar- Garbery. Even? Evelyn. Evelyn Garbery, and she was in Dublin. And she taught you four things. Well, I mean, she taught you lots of things, but many there was things. four kind of mantras or to follow. What were they? Do you remember? Well, one was... When you don't know what to go for on the stage, go for the heart. I always remembered that. Another was, you must reach a stage where you, as the artist, as the actor, turns over 90% of yourself and all your facilities to be at the beck and call of the character who is going to use them for a little while. And the other 10%, which is you, go on up there in the booth with the technician, with the stage manager, and watch. 
and you become the conduit between what the character has to do and you guiding so that you're the one who can see all the um, uh, impediments, all the problems, everything, slightly before the you that's down on the stage can see it and you send the message. And that's why it, what it creates is this, it seems like endless amounts of time in which you can make all kinds of decisions and uh, you know when someone else is going to have a problem. You know, It's happening in a split millisecond, but it's like eternity. And that's what exists between the 10% of you and the 90% of you that's down there on that stage. And I know what that is. I have experienced it. I know it. And it freaked me the first time it happened. Uh, How even, so? Explain that. So you become the character so much so. Well, see, people often say, you know, uh, and they think it's a, well, bless them, a badge of some kind of greatness. I be completely became the character. You can never become the character unless you sink right into schizophrenia. <laughs> I love that you said that you come from a place of very raw emotion, no fooling around, and you say it's like a Nova Scotian thing. It's like there's no time for nonsense. You just, it just is. It just is. The same thing you were saying before about the tight ropes when they come together like that, and you assume mm -hmm. you try to be totally. what someone thinks you should be. Totally. About life's journey, you once said, you've crossed a threshold where you're no longer no longer afraid. You rejoice in who you are. When did, did you, Walter, become no longer afraid? Ah, I would have to say that I first became aware of it in turning 60. I would agree, as I've just turned 60. And do you know, there's a, there's a happiness scale. I did a thing on old age. And you're happiest when you're young, and then it sort of goes down, and yeah. sort of whatever you might have peaks and valleys. But mm -hmm. but when you hit sixty, it goes back up the happiness into the end of your life. Yes, yeah. in general, it's it, it's knowing it, it, thyself. Exactly, very, and that's you know, like it was just a it was a realization that sort of like eased its way into the consciousness because these things are never like bam they, they, but it's also they, you become a child again that you don't you're not aware of what you're supposed to be you just are and that's why it's addressed in the final sphinx speech in tightrope time all and, these things are addressed in there and let's hear it then the sphinx says Pretentiousness will compel you in the springtime of your twenties to think your life an epic for a book. But later, as your season waxes lush into your thirties, your saga will be captured in a chapter. With a honing of perspective in the summer of your forties, 
your story will be written in a paragraph. Then you will learn to chart your sojourn as you ponder through your fifties in the eloquent simplicity of a sentence. But you will come to know that all you know is nothing while cocooning in your sixties and your who and what and why and how your all becomes a word, I. Then, with wisdom as your mentor, as you autumn out your seventies, your adventure will be recounted in a look. Understanding will render counsel in the winter of your eighties and mold your life experience into a smile. Then in the peace that comes with silence and the surety of your nineties, your inner light will shine upon the countless revelations subtly etched in lines and creases on your face. And with a deference to enlightenment, you will gently slip away as your midnight offers homage to your morning and your all becomes a single fading sigh, drifting down your corridors of dimming consciousness with this parting thought. You only get from where you are to where you need to go by inching on your tightrope. But rest assured, your tightrope time ain't nothing more than some itty-bitty madness between your twilight and your dawn. Walter, thank you for today and thank you for the contribution you've made to art for all of us to enjoy from when I was a child, personally, <laughs> till now. You're a wonder and we are so lucky to have you. Thank you so much, Mary. I've enjoyed this tremendously. Yeah, thank you. Thank you more. <laughs> You're listening to The Last Epistle of Tightrope Time, The Enduring Wisdom of Walter Borden, by Ideas producer Mary Link. You can go to our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, to see additional materials for this documentary. Technical production, Danielle Duval and Pat Martin. Web producer, Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.